in your Bible, the book of Romans, and I'm preaching the book through the book of Romans. If you are not a regular member, which means I just go through the Bible preaching it as it comes, and uh, Romans is the, has been called by Martin Luther and other great theologians the greatest book in all the Bible, and I certainly would not debate that. And we're in chapter 4, where we were last week, and the subject this morning is Let's talk about your faith. Let's talk about your faith. We've been in a part of the book of Romans that's not been absolutely applicable and practical every time, but now we're getting to the point there's a lot of application, a lot that you can apply to your own life. And I hope you'll take some notes with me. There's some space there in your program. At least write down the main points. It'll help you to remember and to learn and Would you stand with me one more time? You've stood a lot today, but that's okay. We stand here because we have great respect for God's Word, the Bible. And in Romans chapter number 4, we begin, I'll read, and you follow with me in your Bible, chapter 4, verse 3. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, that is one of the major, major concept, principle, verses in all the Bible that teaches justification and salvation by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him for righteousness. Now I go down to verse number 16. It is of faith, or it was of faith in Abraham's case, that it might be by grace. If it had been by works, then it would not have been of grace. But it's of faith that it might be by grace. Now, the main reading, verse 19. And Abraham, being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was a 100 years old, referring to the fact that God told him he was going to have a son, and he was a 100. And that's unbelievable. That, is, that takes faith, doesn't it? He was a hundred years old, and neither did he consider the deadness of Sarah, his wife's womb. He staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief, but he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, God was able also to perform. Therefore, it was imputed or credited to him for righteousness." Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. You see, this is for us. To whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our our offenses and raised again for our justification. And you may be seated. This man, Abraham here, is literally the icon of faith among Christian people. He is presented as such in the Bible. He is the Bible's outstanding example of faith. And I cannot overstress the importance of faith because, you see, the Bible says you cannot be saved without faith. You cannot earn your way to heaven by anything that you do. By grace are you saved by faith. 
You will never see heaven's shores if you do not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only is salvation, not only is faith essential to your salvation, faith is also essential to living the Christian life. Every one of us must live by our faith in Christ. And in all the different applications of what we do in life, faith is a critical and essential part of that. Now, in verses 23 and 24, I stop, but I want to especially draw attention to it again. Verse 23, it was written for, it was not written, pardon me, it was not written for Abraham's sake alone, verse 24, but for us also. So what I'm going to say about Abraham, I could say about you. And so I titled the message, Let's Talk About Your Faith. I could have entitled it Abraham's Faith or Let's Talk About Abraham's Faith. But no, I want to talk about your faith and use Abraham as the application and get you to think about your personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I'm going to give you five little simple points, five critical factors, five critical factors in your faith. And number one, I want to tell you up front that you have faith. A lot of people think they don't have faith. The reality is you have faith and you use it every day. Now, I'm going to give you a definition for faith, and I've used this definition for 25 years since I discovered it, I guess, here. The definition is this. Faith is, first of all, based on hearing what God says. Abraham, God spoke to Abraham on a number of occasions. So faith always begins with hearing the Word of God. Number two, faith is not only hearing the Word of God, as you're doing this morning, but it is believing the Word of God. Number three, faith is then acting on the Word of God. It's not enough just to intellectually accept it, but if faith is real, it moves the person to action. And fourthly then, faith is relying on God to keep his promises, leaving the rest up to him. Now, let me review it one more time. I do not want you to miss, that is the most important thing possibly I'm going to say to you today, to properly define faith, because people think of faith as some sort of mystical Uh, spiritual type thing. No, faith is four parts, hearing what God said. And we do that, of course, when we read the Bible. That's the way we hear God speak. So faith is hearing what God said. It is believing it, believing it really in your heart of hearts. It is acting upon it. You not only believe it intellectually, you believe it volitionally. You step out on it, and then you, fourthly, you rely on what God said. You believe God will, in fact, keep his promises. And let me tell you, you have faith, and you use it every single day. You have faith, and you've got more faith than you think you had have, and you use it all the time. And so you open up a can of peas. How many of you take a fork or a spoon and go down to the bottom and fish around to make sure there's not something foreign in those peas? So you accept what the manufacturer said on the label, and he made 10,000 cans that one day. How many of you ever get on an airplane? Many times I've thought about as I walked up the stairs or down the jetway to the airplane, and I looked, and here was the pilot sitting there, and I thought, I I don't know that guy. 
They told me we were going to Atlanta. What if he decides he wants to go to Timbuktu? And then I sit down and read about the airplane. This is a Boeing so-and-so. And I read a little further, and they say, and it was built by the lowest bidder. And I didn't even question. In fact, I paid them good, hard cash to get on that plane. And by faith, I trust the pilot. By faith, I trust the equipment. By faith, I trust that they know where they're going. We have a lot of faith. We use faith every day. I go to a doctor I don't know. He writes and hands me a prescription I can't read. I go to the pharmacy where I see somebody I've never seen before. And they hand me a bottle of pills that has 10 warnings on it. It says, in a, in a very small number of cases, people who have taken this have turned permanently green. And I take it by faith. I don't stand around and say, well, let me analyze. I better take this to my favorite chemist. Uh-uh. You have a lot of faith. And you exercise faith every day. Now, if you and I could just take that definition of faith, God spoke in, to Abraham, and today God has spoken to us through his word. That's why we make such a big case here about the inerrancy of the Bible, that the Bible can be trusted. It's God's inspired word. And so I read in my Bible, I hear God speak through my Bible. I believe what he said. I, in fact, obey what he said. I carry it out. I act upon it, and then I trust the Lord. I leave the rest to him, believing that God will always honor his word and that God will always keep his promises. Just like I take the medicine believing, just like I get on the plane believing, just like I open the can of peas and I don't examine every pea before I eat it, I do it by faith. I trust. I rely upon what people have told me. And when it comes to my soul and my spirit, then I rely on what God said, that salvation is by grace alone that God gives to me as a free gift. Salvation is by faith alone. I trust God for what he said. I depend upon and rely in, on him and salvation is in Christ alone. I add nothing to it or take anything from it that I trust in God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's the classical definition from the Bible of what faith is. You have faith, and you use it every day. Now, number two, the most important factor about your faith is the object of your faith. You see, the average person thinks the most important thing is how much faith I have. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It wouldn't matter how much faith I have in that airplane. If that airplane's faulty, it's going to come down. It wouldn't matter how much faith I have in the doctor if he was inept and incompetent when I go to him. It's not going to help me, no matter how much trust I have in him. You see, the object of my faith is the critical, critical factor. Not how much, but who is my faith in? Now, here's the way it, Jesus said it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17, if you have faith as a mustard seed, and then the scripture goes ahead and adds this 
little side note, the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds. And so Jesus took the smallest common object that he could use to represent how much faith we need in order to, in his case, he was talking about moving mountains of difficulty, doing big things, doing important things, making your life count. And what did Jesus say? It's not how much faith you have. You only need as much faith as in comparison to a mustard seed. But it's the object of your faith that counts. The apostle Paul said that in a different way. He said, I know whom I have believed. He didn't say, I know how much I've believed. And you and I would always then be trying to conjure up more faith. It is not how much faith you have. I stress that because I know that people don't understand that. It is not how much faith you have. It is who your faith is in. Is the object of your faith able to perform what he has promised? Will you look up there and in verse number 21, you see that. Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. So the object of faith is critical. It is all important. Here's the way I like to say it. Better a small amount of faith in a great God than a great amount of faith in a small God. Think about that. Better a small mustard seed grain of faith in a great God who has unlimited power an omnipotent God. Better a small amount of faith in a great God than a great amount of faith in a weak or impotent God. And that's the teaching of the Bible. Now, you hear that even misconstrued in Christian circles. When I was a boy, I grew up singing a song in the church. I can hear that little country church congregation singing. Only believe only believe all things are possible. Only believe, only believe. I can tell you all in rapt attention at my solo here. <laughs> only believe all things are possible. Only believe, only believe, only believe, only believe. The message of that song really ultimately is just believe. If you believe enough, it's going to get done. The little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I can. That's not what the Bible teaches. That song exhorts us to only believe, but it doesn't tell us who to believe in. The main thing is not believing. The main thing is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he who made promises to us is able to perform those promises. That's what's so all important, isn't it? Better a little grain of faith in a great God than to have all the faith in the world but to have it in a God who is not able to perform. And people often come to me, and here's what they'll say, something on this order. Pastor, I want you to pray for me. I wish I had more faith. Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with having great faith. I'd like to have more faith too. But our question first shouldn't be, I need more faith. Our question should be, in whom is my faith placed? It's not faith in faith 
that is the critical factor. It's faith in the right object. That object is the promises of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, you have faith, and you use it every day, number one. Number two, the most important factor in your faith is the object of the faith. So this morning, if you are doubting and if your faith is seemingly weak to you, transfer your trust. Now think of that term. Think of those words. Transfer your trust. Transfer who you're relying on from yourself, struggling and working and trying to please the Lord. Transfer your trust from yourself and begin to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and his greatness and the greatness of God and the power of God. And it won't take much faith then for God to really begin to work in your life. Number one, you have faith. Number two, the most important factor in your faith is the object of the faith. Number three, the strength of your faith depends on your relationship with the one you trust. How strong is your faith? The strength of your faith totally depends upon your relationship with the one that you trust. Look in verse 20 again, please. Abraham staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief in his life, but he was strong in faith. Pardon me. Why don't you underline that phrase or circle that in your Bible? Strong in faith. Abraham's faith was characterized by strength. But now why... How could his faith be so strong? Here he is, 100 years old. God says to him, you're going to have a son. And he said, what? And God said, you're going to have a son. And from that son will come two of the great peoples of the earth, the Jews and the Arabs. From from you will come those two nations, nations of the earth that your progeny, your descendants will be greater than the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. You're going to be called the father of all nations, the father of all people of faith. You're going to be one of the icons of all history, Abraham. And so he made these promises, and the strength of his faith depended on the relationship. Now, let me show you a little bit more about that. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7, don't go back there this morning for the sake of time, but just write down the reference, Genesis 12 and 7. It says, for the first time in all of Scripture, the Lord appeared to Abraham. First time that's mentioned, that God actually came and appeared to a man, spoke to a man that the man could visibly see Almighty God. And Abraham listened as God made these promises, these commitments to him. And then in chapter 14 and verse number 22, Abraham is describing the God that has appeared to him, that he has come to know, and on whose promises he now is relying. And Abraham describes God like this. He's the most high God. He's the sovereign God. He is the God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. He is not a God. He is the God who owns and controls and sovereignly dispatches every event of this universe. He is the sovereign creator, personal God that I've come to know. And if he told me I was going to have a son and I'm 100, then this God 
is able to perform on his promises. And Abraham took that promise to the bank. And as God had promised, so it occurred. Twice in Scripture, the Bible says that Abraham was called the friend of God. What other man in Scripture can you think of? Great men, Moses and John and Paul and the apostles. But what man in Scripture is called God's friend? And why is he called that? He's called that because of this powerful relationship he had, his faith in God. He trusted the Lord so much. This is unbelievable. He trusted the Lord so much that the Lord said to him, now, after the son came 15, 18 years later, the son is born, and now he's a teenage young man. And God said, take the son up there on top of the mountain, by the way, which is the temple mountain in Israel right now in the city of Jerusalem, same mountain. Take the son up there and sacrifice him. And Abraham must have the look on his face must have been the most incredulous look of anybody in all of history. After all these years of waiting, now you want me to take the son and sacrifice him? Yes, I want you to do that. So Abraham obeys him. Faith is hearing the word, believing the word, and acting on the word. He had to act on it. If he, were, if he was going to believe the Lord going forward, he had to act on it. And so he did. He took the young man. He took a a donkey or some animals with their supplies because it was some distance away. He took another of his servants with him, at least one, perhaps more. And they took this journey, and finally they come to the foot of the mountain, and they're ready to go up and sacrifice. And Abraham turns to the young man or young men who are with him, and here's what he says. You stay here with our possessions. While the young man and I go up on the mountain to worship God, and in a few days, we will come back. Huh? We will come back. I thought you were going to go sacrificing. Oh, we are. But you know, the God who gave me my son is now telling me to sacrifice him, but he's also telling me that there's going to be a great nation come from him, so I know somehow or other he's going to continue to live. So you just stay here and wait because that God is able to perform his promises. And three days later, he came back. And he came back with his son. You know the story. Now, here's the thing. If you want to write down a great principle, here's a great principle to help you and me in our Christian life. The power to believe a promise depends on the character and the ability of the one who makes the promise. The power to believe is not in you. See, back to this thing about understanding faith. Oh, I wish I had more faith, Brother Bill. No, the power to believe doesn't come from you wishing you had more faith. Here it is. Here's a powerful principle. The power to believe a promise depends on the character and the ability of the one who makes the promise. And so when God makes us promises in his word, my friend, you can take it to the bank because God's character and God's ability to perform, his competency, both, are absolutely adequate. And that that applies to anybody. 
if I make you a promise, then my character and my competency to perform to carry out that promise is in view, isn't it? What if you said, you know, I like Brother Bill. He's a good pastor. I'll tell you what, he's a good man. He's a wonderful man, but you can't believe a thing he says. No, uh-uh. because a person's character is on stake when they give their word. And the, pro- the ability or the power to believe a promise, God's promises or anybody else's, depends on the character and the ability of the one making the promise. And so the strength of your faith then is based upon your relationship with God, that you know him, you know him well enough, you know he's going to keep his promises to you. You're depending on that and relying on that, trusting in that with all of your heart. And that's why your walk with the Lord, your daily devotional time, beginning the day with the Bible in your lap is so essential. If I don't do that, my faith grows weak and anemic. But when I am in God's word and I'm regularly in the services Hearing the word of God taught and preached, my faith is going to flourish. Number four, the proof of of faith is action. The proof of faith is action. Human beings always act consistent with what they truly believe. Not what they say, but what they truly, truly believe. So if I believe food is contaminated, I don't eat it. If I believe these pills will heal my body and I'm sick, I take those pills. My actions always conform to what I truly believe. Think of my kids and other fathers. You see fathers do this all the time. I remember when my little girls were small. They'd be standing up on a ledge or up on a platform or something. And I'd be standing maybe a couple of feet below them and I'd hold out my hands and say, come here to daddy, jump. And, and fear would come up in their little eyes and they'd look, and I, they'd look at the little distance here. Oh, I don't know if I want to do that or not. Fear would kind of hold them back. Come on, come here, Tara, come here, Temple. And they would jump finally. The faith that they had that I would catch them would overtake their fear because Faith always involves action. If we believe, then it's not just an intellectual thing. It is faith that moves Abraham to action, or it moves me to action, or you to action. We've got a tragic thing happening in American Christianity. It's epidemic. We call it today nominal Christianity, meaning that people profess and claim to be Christians, but they don't have the evidence in their lives that they really do sincerely have those beliefs that they claim. Nominal Christianity. There are no consistent actions in their life that support the claim of their lips, the claim of their testimony. Yes, I'm a Christian, but is there evidence in your life? Is there fruit on your tree that would indicate And then so many times people live a barren life. Their lips, their testimony does not conform with the actions of their life. James said in the book of James near the end of the Bible, you show me your faith without your works, 
and you can't do it. I will show you my faith by my works. My works, my actions demonstrate the integrity of my faith, of my belief. Number one, you have faith. Number two, the most important factor in your faith is the object of the faith. Number three, the strength of your faith depends upon having a relationship with the one you trust. Number four, the proof of faith, the evidence of faith is action that you in fact do what your faith demands. And number five, these principles are as relevant for you and me as they were for Abraham. Look at verse 23 in your Bible. I want you to, I took my pen even this morning and I underlined a phrase here. Now it was not written, and then I underlined in my Bible, for his sake alone. Those four words. It was not written for Abraham's sake alone, and then I skipped the phrase and I went to verse 24, and then I underlined the next five, four words again. But for us also. These principles Paul is writing here were not just for Abraham's sake, they're for ours. And so these principles are just as relevant this morning as they were when Abraham lived about 1,400 years before Jesus Christ. This is for you. This is for me. This is for us today. And in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, I read it starting out. Go back with me, chapter 4, verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted or imputed or credited to him for righteousness. And I've given you the background of that, how that that doctrine and teaching was lost for centuries. And then in the Reformation, it was rediscovered as people began to read the Bible. And they began to preach it and teach it. And across the whole world, there was a spiritual revival, a little a revolution as people left trying to please God by doing things on their own and began to just accept what God had said. Now, listen to me. I want you to get this. It may be that someone is here today. And if I could look down in your heart and you were judgment day honest with me, you don't really know that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. You don't know that God has justified you, declared you to be innocent and free of, of, of the past, the sins of the past. You don't really know that God has made you righteous, not by what you have done, but by what he has done, what Christ did on the cross. And when Jesus hung up on the cross and he was punished for the sins of all of humanity from Adam up to today and from today on as long as there's a human being on the earth, that Jesus Christ paid it all when he gave his life and gave his blood as a sacrifice before God for the sins of humanity. That is the good news. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins, and three days later, he arose from the grave. That's the good news. Now, but because Christ died for all men doesn't mean that all men are saved. And so today, the idea is, have you transferred your trust from the things you do, trying to live a good life, go to church, be a moral person, serve in the community, whatever it may be, all those good deeds of righteousness, but God won't accept those. 
The Bible says all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. They're they're an offense to God. He doesn't want our good deeds mingle with the sins and of our life. But when we receive Jesus Christ, God transfers my sin to the cross, and he takes the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus Christ and transfers that to my account. And that's why it says, Abraham put his faith in God. He believed God, and it was counted to him, credited to him for righteousness. And when you genuinely trust Jesus Christ, God doesn't look at you as a sinner. He looks at you through the righteousness of his son, and he accepts you based on what Christ did at Calvary in those lonely hours on the cross. And so we describe salvation like this. Salvation is by grace. That's God's part. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it, but God gives it to us. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You know what? I'm clear out of the picture. When I begin to doubt my salvation or worry about my sin, you know what I've learned to do now based on what I've just taught? I just go through that again. And it doesn't worry me. It doesn't plague me. I have peace with God because it's not about anything Bill Monroe has done. It's about what Jesus did by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I didn't have anything to do with it other than to accept the gift by faith. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.